you know, people in Silicon Valley are always talking about how to change the world. But in, in China, it's more about how do we adapt to a changing world? How do we improve our own life? And um, according to him, that's, that's the main difference. I mean, and we, we know this stuff is all propaganda, but my gosh, I wish we at least had some better propaganda right now in the U.S. That would yeah. get me through this thing. Hello and welcome to the China Talk, hosted on Lawfare. This week we have a three-parter. First, an interview with Dan Grover talking about QR codes in China. Uh, next, a reading from the China Talk newsletter, which you can subscribe to at chinatalk.substack.com, featuring translations of Chinese opinions on QR codes. And finally, a corona story from India. Hi, I'm, I'm Dan Grover. I'm a product manager in Silicon Valley. So I hear you used to work in China. Yes, I, I spent a few years at Tencent in Guangzhou. Well, first off, I want to acknowledge that your very occasional blog, dangrover.com, <laughs> is one of the reasons I thought working at a consumer-facing Chinese tech firm would be a good idea. And so I want to blame you, first <laughs> off, for wasting six months of my life. But secondly, thank you for writing insightful things about something that basically no one covers. So with Glad that, enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> with that, <laughs> let's let's jump into this this recent piece about the way that Chinese tech companies and their applications have responded to uh, coronavirus domestically in China. Contrasting that to the seeming lack of action on the part of Silicon Valley's giants. So first off, let's lay the groundwork of what has been happening and why on the most commonly used apps for hundreds of millions of, of Chinese nationals. So what were the um, main UI innovations that struck you on these giant apps? I think what we're seeing is they, they've applied a lot of new ideas that have come across in the last few years in Chinese apps really well. And they've made all the various tools that these tech companies are launching to help people deal with the coronavirus. They've managed to put them in in a very central way, attract a lot of attention to them, and just really put them to use. Let's talk about the two ones that you highlighted in this piece. So first were apps um, that direct people to get care. So what was going on in this area? Yeah, so there's a few things to look at there. One thing worth pointing out is just the way that the medical system is is set up to deal with crises like this. They've got this concept of fever clinics there, which if you're not familiar with it, it's basically a place where you can go if you're not seriously sick and they will diagnose you and try to figure out what to do with you and kind of isolate you for a while so that you're not going back and potentially spreading the virus um, to your family. So a lot of these were set up during the mm-hmm. SARS epidemic. A bunch more have been set up recently. So one of the things that all the apps did very early on was they just put a map view where you can just go and find the closest one to you, which is definitely very useful if you are if you think that you might be sick. They also had an official list of all of the hospitals that were officially designated to, to actually deal with the serious cases with ICUs and ventilators and things like that. And those were all in the map views. So this is this was in, in WeChat, it's in Baidu, it's in, in Alipay. They all had these very prominent maps where you could go and figure out where to go. The other thing that's happening is there's all of these um, telemedicine apps or, or ventures that are that are happening. So there's the um, Ping An Hao Yisheng app that had a 10x growth just during the crisis. There's a Tencent Health Play. There's an Ali Health Play. So all of these e-health apps kind of took advantage of the crisis and tried to get more people to try 
their consultation products. So a lot of them were doing free consultations. A lot of them were doing, you know, one RMB consultations and people were going in there and asking, you know, either common, common things that they would have gone to the doctor for, but are kind of too afraid for because of the, the epidemic, um, just like, you know, common colds and rashes and stuff like that. Or they're asking, like, can you diagnose me? Should I go in and, and get checked out? And that deflected a lot of the load off of the hospital so they could deal with people who were, who were sick. I can tell you my experiences um, going to the going to the doctor. So I after after I became a, a Chinese employee of Tencent, I didn't get to have the like fancy expat medical plan, and you just got a health savings account with the special bank card. And I just went to the normal People's Hospital of Guangzhou, and it was it was set up like a deli. You go in, you get a number, you say I want to see a dermatologist or whatever it is. And then you take your number and then you go see the doctor. I would say it's not as it's, so it's like, it's a very quick casual thing. Thankfully, I never had anything really, really serious happen to me. So I don't know about, about that, but I would say for all of the sort of common things that I would need to see the doctor for, it was, it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. And I think the, the, the other key to this, which presumably is the difference between the U S system is like, really straightforward checkup type things in China are paid for out of pocket and are shockingly affordable. So I guess now is as good a time as ever to tell this story. So during my birthday, I had a friend who, this was I think two years ago now, I had a friend who shook my hand. He was like, happy birthday, Jordan. And I thought it was a little weird he shook my hand, but whatever, this is this guy's thing. So as he's shaking my hand, he notices that there's a bump on my uh, knuckle. And he's like, what's up with that? And at first I thought it was, I had just like playing basketball. I'd like, I'd like, you know, dislocated my finger or something. So I spent the whole day kind of like pushing it back and forth and whatever the bump didn't go away. So by th- this afternoon, I was sort of freaking out and went to the, I forget which hospital it is. It was like, it was like right near, right near Gulo. It was you know, some very local hospital. I was in the line. I pressed the button. My card didn't have money on it. I didn't have cash. I had it to like, talk to someone and persuade them to give me cash while I like <laughs> sent them money on WeChat. And by the time I went through all this, you know, it was already four o'clock and I had my ticket and I was in line, but they're like, no, sorry, we're not doing any x-rays for the rest of the day. So, you know, there are five other people in line screaming at the person being like, let me do the x-ray. I've been waiting all day. So I figured, all right, this is not going to happen. So, you know, I burned a hundred quai on that ticket, but then I end up going to the like slightly, I think <laughs> I went to Beijing Union which was, not, it's not like a super fancy, like Western private one, but is definitely like a step up from the really local place I went. And my x-ray cost uh, $100. So they scan this thing and there is one resident who had like halfway decent English. And, but, but before the resident talked to me, they handed me the report in Chinese. And I was going through, I was going through, going through, and I was trying to decipher it. But uh, as I was doing it, the guy came in and like, he just started screaming, benign, benign, benign. <laughs> like it was the one, like it was the only word in English he knew. So Athena was getting on the plane, um, getting like, like on the tarmac about to take off on a plane. I sent her the photo of the readout and she was like, Jordan, like, I really can't talk. It's actually going to break up any second, but like, just know you're going to be okay. And then the, 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 the call cuts out. So anyways, a very dramatic, oh, but ultimately positive thing. So it was, it was bump is gone. Well, I mean, it was, it was still like a bump, 
that I had to get cut out. But yes, it was like it was like some like cartilage growth, and like now I have a cool little scar on my third right. Oh, that's good. It worked out. Um. Oh yeah. So you know, one one reason I imagine this sort of telemedicine can get a real push in the in China in a way that it isn't potentially in the West is because it is so integrated with these platforms. What is it about, you know, Google Health that has failed? And are the current startups sort of lacking in funding to be able to invest in these sorts of things? Like, what do you think is, was able the, the Chinese telemedicine to flourish in a way that it doesn't seem like America's has been at least over the past month? There is just this thing, though, where in China, there are a lot of these, these, you know, there's these conglomerates and they spin up businesses in all sorts of different sectors. And it is, I would say it's comparatively easy for them to find a reason to promote their, you know, if, if Alibaba is doing a coronavirus center in all of their apps anyway, you might as well ask the people at Alibaba Health, is there a tie-in we can do to, to promote this in there, right? I imagine it's just more tightly integrated systems and companies that are sort of used to working on so many different verticals and and already sort of more already already proven that they've been able to 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 make quote super apps. There's an angle worth worth covering which is this what's happening to the Chinese apps where they've all kind of developed these these inner platforms, these mini program platforms which have which have allowed a lot of these first party features as well as third party apps to integrate a lot more smoothly into them. Totally. And and we definitely saw that at play with with some of the features that were launched. Great. So now coming to the role QR health codes have played in fighting the virus. We should first talk about how how the lockdown was was enforced. So in a, in a lot of places people's apartment complexes would try to keep track of people's health or they'd keep track of who's coming and going and give you this um, like paper passbook to um, to only let you out or over over a certain period a lot of places of employment would do a similar system where they'd have people who would take your temperature see if you're sick see where see where you've been traveling so this is kind of happening everywhere and is is very inefficient as you can imagine so one of the things that came out in I think early February in Hangzhou was they created the system where you could generate a QR code for yourself, where you'd put in your ID information, you'd answer a questionnaire about where you've been and, and what symptoms you have, and it would put you into one of a few buckets. You could be green, which is I'm healthy, I'm good to go. You could be yellow, which means potentially risky, or you could be red, which is like definitely stay at home. And this this took off. It got over a million QR codes generated in the first couple of days after the launch. And it was quickly. Again, this was an Alibaba. This was an Alibaba product created initially locally by the Hangzhou, I think, municipal government and yeah. um, Alibaba, who's of course based in Hangzhou, to figure out a way for that city to get back open again. Yeah. So, so that took off in Hangzhou, and a whole bunch of other cities copied it. So there's one in Shanghai. There's one in Beijing. Everybody's everybody's doing these health QR code systems. Some of them are from Ollie, so they've they've just asked Ollie, "Hey, can you spin us up one of these?" And then they figure out how to brand it and get people using it. But some of them also were made by Tencent, which very quickly jumped into it. So there are hundreds of these systems by March that had launched, and what eventually happened was the the state council decided to make a official national version of this that people could use. And now you can see that's what's being promoted in, in these apps. 
when it says health QR code. Yeah. So a few things are interesting about this. First, you have this great quote from some government official after Alibaba gave like a few million dollars to the relief efforts. And the guy was like, look, why don't you make some software and actually do something useful? Because like money (laughs) is not the problem right here. So um, first off, that's fascinating. My other my other thought bubble as to why this is something that really took off in in China in a way that it hasn't in the US is the fact that like there actually really was a complete lockdown in the first place and you did not see people going out in the street. So, you know, there's an aspect of that which is like a policy, which is like a policy decision. There's another aspect of China just being more suited to for people to live at home and the logistics were set up better so that you could actually, you know, a whole country could actually end up ordering all their groceries online. Mm-hmm. So when you have a a real complete lockdown, then your biases towards everyone to stay in until there's a way to sort of prove you're healthy, as opposed to in the US where like you basically, you know, there are no cops putting people in jail because they're they're going outside or even in New York, I was just walking around this past um, Saturday, April 25th. And you know, there are folks still walking around without masks on. So if that isn't something that if the sort of baseline is that, I feel like doing this sort of like contract tracing and making people stay at home is just not going to happen. There was some sort of like neighborhood level enforcement that then they wanted to outsource up as opposed to in the US, people are talking about, oh, let's do contact tracing or whatever. But like that would actually end up leaving us with a more restrictive system than we have currently, which is hard to think about people getting necessarily on board with. Whereas health QR codes in China were actually a, a way to sort of release the pressure that people were were feeling from their local neighborhood organizations. Right, right. And it's also like a way to kind of standardize whatever heuristics were being used, because it seems like everybody had their own system for trying to trying to keep people healthy, right? So this thing came out, and I've been reading some of the threads on Juhu, and nobody will really say, this is how we decide what category to put you in. Nothing in the official spec tells you how it works. Lots of speculation. It seems like at the bare minimum, what it's doing is looking at your symptoms that you self-reported, and it's and it's starting a counter where basically after 14 days, you're safe. It's, it seems that there are some of these systems, there's some other heuristics that are applied. So there are location tracking things that have been launched separately by the phone companies where you can get, you can get kind of an affidavit of where the phone company thinks you've been if you needed to show that to someone. So there's speculation, well, maybe that is being linked in. In the, the Xinhua editorial I mentioned, they're pointing out that apparently the Shanghai system they're they're linking to all these different municipal databases and applying all the stuff. So who who knows how much of that is like actually happening, you know, in 1984 Big Brother style, and how much of yeah. that how much of that is just pure marketing BS. I tend to think a lot of it is the latter. I think a lot of these systems are going to be pretty siloed, and it's going to be very difficult. You know, for launching this thing in a few weeks, I don't think they're they're joining data from like the hospitals or the phone companies or anything like that. I think that's I think that's that's marketing. But apparently there might be some truth to what had been going on in Shanghai with their system where they had apparently a pre-existing platform for for doing some of this sort of thing. But I, I would bet the national one isn't doing anything that advanced. 
I translated an article which was kind of like walking through the first weeks of uh, the Alibaba team and how they got it to stand up and just the, the fact that it sounded so incredibly harried and you know they're they like ended up like using the 60 people who are like locked down in Hubei who are their engineers to like make the make the Wuhan one it just sounds like the big brother fears of this at least for the moment are not are not necessarily completely baked in but this is definitely a platform that you can you know if you're an authoritarian country can grow into something that are our, our, our soft little Western eyes may find very, very uncomfortable. So why don't we do the Trump Google story and why this isn't happening in the U.S. right now? So I think when I wrote the piece maybe a month ago, I was just impressed with all of the very, very useful features that had been launched in such a short amount of time and, and surfaced so prominently in the major apps that people were using. And the, the only thing when I looked around at... At the app, at the American apps that I'm using, like what have they what have they actually done? Right, there's um, some PSAs that say like, hey, you should wash your hands. There's a um, couple of places where you can see the stats, which is nice. Then there's that weird press conference where they had all the CEOs, and Trump was like, yeah, Google's going to launch this this thing that can help you find a test. And then Google had to had to backtrack that. It, it, was, it was remarkable. Just, it was just such a crazy yeah. contrast because this is this is supposed to be like the high tech capital of the world, and Google's like, yeah, well, it's only going to be local, and it's not actually us; it's our subsidiary. And and actually, I haven't seen yeah. this thing come out. Have you seen anything? No, I mean, I think it came out, and it was literally, you know, you we were talking earlier about like the where you can get treatment thing. I think it was a map that had three three dots on it. <laughs> it was like it was like the biggest bust of the century. It was it was really remarkable. So, you know, on the one hand, these companies can say, hey, you know, we don't want to make this like crazy privacy tracking thing. But putting that aside, there's a ton of stuff that can be done um, that doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, get lawyers scared. Totally. Well, I think like the 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 reason I think for the contrast that I just talked about was it, it seems like the Chinese tech company's response to this, they're, they're not entirely doing it out of this goody-two-shoes, public goods sort of sentiment like a lot of the U.S. companies yeah. are. They're, they're actually trying to make money off this, which is not necessarily a bad thing. So a lot, a lot of um, what you've seen, it's, you know, they have business units that are doing health stuff. They're like, like shit, let's, mm-hmm. let's promote this. Let's get people to try teleconsultations. They have... People they have their e-commerce divisions. They're like, let's figure out how to how to ship more masks and make people more confident in, in the masks that they're buying. They have what gosh, what else? Then there's the whole mini program angle where all of these things are are being used to like acclimate people to to using mini programs in, in Ollie and, and WeChat and things like that. And uh, Tencent even funded a whole bunch of people to go develop apps or mini programs to to aid the pandemic. So there's there's like a there's a business angle to this thing that I think the companies there were were quick to seize on, and when I look at what's happening here, um, like yes, Silicon Valley companies are trying to figure out how to be helpful, but they're not trying to make money off of it, which I think is 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 the interesting difference. I think the mainstream Washington consensus would be like, oh, these companies were all forced to do it to do all this stuff by the government, which I think like on. On some sense, maybe that was the origin of the Alibaba totally. QR code, but but very quickly it became something that that was just like another competition between Alibaba and Tencent, where each country want, wanted their QR code to be the official QR code of you know Guanxi or wherever 
um, wherever we're talking right. about. And there's, there's, another... also, there's also like the enterprise software angle to this. So when Ollie launched their system, there was also, there's an enterprise component of it because your, your company was scanning your code when you come in. And that was all done through DingTalk, which is, of course, they're trying to compete with, with ByteDance and Tencent with their enterprise communication products. So it's, yeah. also, it's also a way to like get more people using these things with that as a, as a selling point. Is there another aspect of this where just like, you know, Facebook and Google and Twitter are fat and lazy and Alibaba and Tencent are more hungry and more entrepreneurial and better at like doing things really fast? I, 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 you know, after all the time spent in China, I still don't quite understand the, the, the source of that because from one angle, you could say, you could say Alibaba and Tencent are, are pretty lazy because they, you know, the, the, they are entrenched to a certain degree in as Chinese internet companies because they're so good at complying with regulations because they're insulated to some degree from, from competition. So you, you could, you could look at that situation and you, and you should say, and you could say why they, they should be way lazier than, than Google or, or Apple or something, yeah. but, but they're not. And that's, that's always really puzzled to me because they all, they all move very fast. They're doing lots of interesting things. Are there other reflections you have comparing your, your time at Tencent and your time in uh, big Silicon Valley? I guess I would, I would describe like the attitude there. I, I think people are hungrier um, than, than we are in Silicon Valley. And it's, and it's not a matter of the business itself or, or like the competition. It's just like, there's, there's a, the, the vibe is, is very different. And I miss that sometimes. Yeah. Well, the flip side of hunger is like desperation, right? right. I was reading or tr- trying to read through, there's a, there's an official book on, on Tencent history by, by Ushabo called uh, Tung Shun John. In the intro, th- there's a great quote where he said something to the effect of, you know, it, people in Silicon Valley are always talking about how to change the world. But in, in China, it's more about how do we adapt to a changing world? How do we improve our own life? And um, according to him, that's, that's the main difference. And I, I like that summation a lot. There's one other thing I wanted to talk about. I noticed this playing, like playing around in the apps too, about how like the, like, we're all in this together vibe. You know, the only time I really see that is in like terrible um, television ads or like the YouTube ads that like the special coronavirus YouTube ads or like yeah. now is like a time to connect or whatever. But it did, it did for whatever reason, feel much more sincere in the yeah, Chinese Yeah, I, I don't know why that is. And, and we know that, that, you know, politics there are pretty messy too, and not everybody is united and there's lots of, you know, horrible things happening there. But I, I kind of admire that. And it, it made me think of, you know, gosh, I think one time, I want to say after my first year in China, I came back to the U.S. to visit some family. And on one part of the trip, I was, I was staying in a, in a hotel. And I remember like coming down like my first my first day back in the U.S. and watching the the TV news, you know, eating my my continental breakfast, and I think like the election was just starting to heat up, and I just remember feeling so fatigued, even like before Trump was president, at at the division and the conflict and having to process all of that and having to decide who's right, which was like a weird thing that's like we're totally used to living here yeah. now, but seemed like a weird reverse culture shock to me then. And I kind of, even though the reality isn't as, as like buttoned up as it sounds, I like, 
I like that, that the apps, at least, you know, if you look at the messaging, if you look at some of the news that was coming, there's at least the sentiment of like, we're all in this together. Let's solve this. Let's kick this thing's ass that I, yeah. I, I kind of wish we had more of here. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, having lived through like, you know, in Chinese app, everyone was like, Wuhan Jio, like, Hubei yeah. Jio. Like, I've, I've been in the city that has, you know, been hit with the brunt of this. And like, it would be nice if like Twitter said like, Way to go, New York! Like, hang in there or something. I don't know. That like, yeah, give me a nice. Well, there, there are a lot of. I mean, and we we know this stuff is all propaganda. But my gosh, I wish we at least had some better propaganda right now in the U.S. That would yeah. get me through this thing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, honestly, like, if we had a different president, I think the tenor would be a lot different, uh, which is really sad. But I love that one know. that one moment where what was it? Pretty early on, they had um, Lee Kachung going out in that that supermarket. Well, he, he was giving this the speech about like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna get through this. And there's there's a little old lady in front who's just oblivious to the whole thing, who's still like doing, doing her shopping. <laughs> yeah, the other yeah, she's like, I am just trying to get my, my, my tomatoes here. I don't wanna deal with this, this yeah. <laughs> premier president. I don't even know what his title is. What is Lika Chan? Yeah. He went to Beta or something. Yeah. Anyways, so we know that Satya Nadella, Jack Dorsey et al. are all listening to China Talk. So Dan, do you have a takeaway message about what American tech firms should be learning for Chinese ones as we try to fight our way through this virus? I wouldn't be too hard on them now. I was pretty hard in the article. I think these companies have stepped up in, in a lot of important ways since then. I think I think the the takeaway I would find from this is can you can you find ways to be to to serve people in a crisis like this, but in a sustainable way where it also makes sense for you as a business, because then you're going to be able to do more of that and you're going to be able to be more useful than if you just than if you just sort of wall something off and say this is a, a public good project. Um, like find find ways to genuinely improve people's lives while also having it be a, a part of your business. So now I'd like to do a little reading from my newsletter, which you can subscribe to for free at chinatalk.substack.com. The spread of QR code-based quarantine systems has made digital surveillance a reality for the first time for many people on the mainland. While many credit the system with allowing China to emerge from its lockdown, some mainland commentators also worry about the privacy and governance implications of the growing, quote, digital leviathan. Many assume that this system will outlive the epidemic it was built to control. Wang Rong, a researcher at Tencent's internal think tank, worries that China's legal privacy framework isn't up to the task. He argues that China's policy should more closely follow the GDPR framework, which clearly delineates between data processors, i.e. the role Tencent and Ali played, and controllers, the government. Wang argues that the government should be held accountable on several dimensions. And I quote, In Europe, the data processor can only process data in accordance with the written requirements of the data controller and must ensure that its employees can comply with the requirements of confidentiality. As the controller, the government department should limit the scope of data collection to the necessary range related to the epidemic when establishing the scope of data collection and use. The government department has not been fully integrated into, per into the personal information protection legal system. Next, Yan Hailu, a political economy researcher, traced the growth of China's surveillance state back to 9-11 and the Initium, a Hong Kong-based outlet. Quote, the general consensus among researchers in surveillance societies is that 9-11 was the turning point for countries around the world to imitate the U.S.'s investment in digital surveillance, and China is probably the best student among them. During this period, America's Cisco had a large role to play in the construction of Chinese public security. 9-11 made the Chinese government realize that the impact of terrorism on national security 
and a few years later, the London bombing, strengthened the urgency of the Chinese government to promote the construction of electronic monitoring platforms in cities. The huge construction of surveillance infrastructure have made China the world's largest consumer market for surveillance equipment and related integrated services after 2016, 60% of that being due to public sector procurement. Unlike Google and Apple's designs based on voluntary and selective user participation, Ali and Tencent have taken the lead in developing health codes to assist the Chinese government in incorporating the majority of users into a mandatory algorithm-based social management system. During the epidemic, China's commercial data giants not only provided tracing data, including data consumption and mobile calls to the government, but also invested in the development of big data platforms to help the government monitor the epidemic. As epidemic prevention has become the number one priority for local governments, state-owned enterprises are also providing epidemic prevention, technical support. China's three major communications platforms have also developed their own big data solutions. Driven by both political needs and commercial interests, the Chinese government seems to be able to rely on government enterprise cooperation and use technology to achieve any goal to implement security governance. The experience of provinces outside Hubei shows that the grid so that the use of grid management and monitoring technology has indeed controlled the spread of the epidemic. In fact, the health code has been described to some officials as a digital governance tool that can be retained and expanded in the future. And some Chinese public management scholars advocate that the health code be used as a lever to build digital infrastructure and further break down information silos. Finally, podcast host Li Ho-Chen imagines Chinese society with a permanent health code system in a post on the platform Seeing Ideals. He worries about the difficulty between balancing health with individual rights. Quote, the core logic of this risk spread is, in the face of diseases like COVID-19, preventative measures are always better than doing not enough. But what about preventing medical staff from returning to the community? Medical staff are certainly a group with high health risks. Personal freedom can be compromised, but what will stop us from not behaving decently to those compromised by the disease? At the moment when continuation and expansion of the health code is almost inevitable, I suggest you pay attention to the following matters. A. Legislative characteristics of health code. The connotation of a sacred social contract we've signed is, if I have not violated the the law reached by everyone through public persuasion, my freedom should not be restricted. So, if health code restricts access in such a powerful way, then every citizen needs to understand the operating principles and rules of the health code. Next, the human element of health codes. No matter how automated a health code itself is, in order to reduce the advent of a digital leviathan, the health code needs itself to have a centralized management department, a place to lodge complaints, and a mechanism for complete review and adjustments. And finally, compensation for health risk groups. In order to prevent the health code from becoming a tool for the majority to exclude and discriminate against the minority, it's extremely important that those who are evaluated as, as unhealthy receive some form of compensation. Lastly, we have Ravish, host of the Use Case podcast, giving his corona story from India. So India is a large country. We're about a billion and a half people, and the population density is extremely high. Add to that, the healthcare infrastructure isn't really adequate enough. No, everybody knows that if this thing breaks out in the country, there is no way that the healthcare infrastructure can deal with it. And I think that's what scares most of us. And that's what scares everyone, uh, including, I think, the government. And that's why we've been in lockdown for more than a month now. Throughout this entire lockdown period, we've heard stories of how healthcare workers and police are actually trying to convince people to stay home <laughs> in the in the in the initial days the police even resorted to a little bit of lati charge to get people to stay at home because 
it's very hard to convince people when the number of police and uh, police per population and also the law and order is not that strong uh, in some areas it's very hard to convince people to stay indoors and and so it was extremely challenging i would say for everyone at the start but now things start being in a lockdown for about a month where only essential items like groceries and pharmacies are allowed to stay open and all non-essential items which basically everything else is shut i think people have gotten used to it but then again i might just be coming into this from a from a slightly more privileged middle class family background where i can work remotely and i can use a laptop to work but there are so many other people especially migrant workers who live hand to mouth often 7 to 10 people living in a single room in shanties working in factories who have i think been impacted the most in fact the coronavirus i believe has impacted the poor very very differently than it has the others and so the asymmetric nature of its impact i think is is very prominent in a society where the gap between the rich and the poor is so high there were some extremely heartbreaking stories of people walking uh miles and miles because everything is shut down they want to go back home but there are no trains there are no buses running this one story where a girl walked hundreds of kilometers in just 5 or 6 kilometers before she reached her village she died i think those are some of the very heartbreaking tales that uh, have been coming across and migrant workers especially have been stranded in these towns left with nothing no money uh very little ration for food and and so i think it, and so i think the perspectives on how this coronavirus situation has impacted life would vary a lot depending on who you ask actually as a society as well i think some things that disturb me a lot is the is the communal and the religious angle to the virus that's been given so this this event uh, happened in delhi which was the tablighi jamaat which is a big religious festival organized by muslims um and people from all across the world were there this was i, I think somewhere around the third or the fourth week of march before the lockdowns were actually announced and so it was completely legal for a gathering to be organized but a few cases of coronavirus emerged and then these people went out to different provinces then the virus spread in those different provinces and so we saw a huge spike i think what happened then was that the right wing media especially the islamophobic media really gave it a communal communal angle a religious angle to this virus in fact some of the media channels actually ran uh, fake videos and fake news without any factual un- uh, factual bearings to them and called it a virus jihad it was only i think after some of the islamic countries complained and the indian government faced a diplomatic uh, not a crisis but a di- diplomatic challenge that the prime minister tweeted saying something like 
the virus has no religion or caste. But by then, the damage had already been done. We were being circulated videos on WhatsApp of how, uh, say, a Muslim man is shitting on the streets next to the quarantine center to spread the virus or spitting on the streets. And these were all fake videos, by the way. They were old videos from somebody from a long time back. And, and, and that's absolutely not the case, even in regular life. But just the way the entire religious mechanism amplified this into a anti-Muslim agenda was really heartbreaking. I think that's though sort of phased out now. Thankfully so. We're right now in a situation as of May the 3rd where the cases, the number of cases in coronavirus that were doubling three every three or five days are now doubling every 15 days. And some of the states actually planning to open some districts which have not had a coronavirus case for the last 21 days starting tomorrow. And some non-essential services would be resumed as well. But unfortunately, that's not the case in Delhi and Mumbai, some of the big cities which have the maximum number of cases. And it's going to be really challenging to, to really test everyone's patience of how long this can go forth. We've we've all exhausted the number of Netflix TV shows we can watch. I, I don't think TV channels have more content to show everyone. They're repeating the same movies every day. Then there, there are no newspapers coming in because everyone's scared. But still, overall, I think as a country, we're sort of dealing with it. And I think we might be dealing with it slightly better than some of the other countries in the neighborhood as well. So far, the number of deaths in India have been under 2,000 which is a big deal given our population size. Also, the number of positive cases out of the total number of cases tested is around 4%, which is much lower than it is for some of the European uh, countries or for America for that matter. And and, and there have been weird theories around why that is. Some people said it's because of the heat. Some people said it's because everybody, almost everybody is given a vaccine called BCG for tuberculosis when when we're kids and so there are these weird theories but none of them is actually uh, none of them have actually been proven so you can't really create a causation exercise here but but still the coronavirus pandemic has not magnified to a scale as it has in some of the other countries but i i would still say it's largely because of the lockdown in place so if you made it this far you're probably a fan of china econ talk If so, do consider donating to my Patreon, which you can find in the show notes. Also, tell a friend, or two, or three. You totally have three friends. If you're a China Talk listener, you totally have at least three friends. So prove it to me. I want to see download numbers triple by next week. Ready, set, go, man, go.
Shuffle to the left, now shuffle to the right. Gonna rock and roll till the early, early night. 